Thank you, Jessica. <clears throat> what a blessing uh, your gifts and talents that God has put in you have been to us in our body. We really appreciate that. Although one day, one Sunday, as a joke, we should probably agree and not tell Jessica, nobody clap. Let's just be a silent, an awkward silence and keep her wondering, what did I do wrong the rest of the service? <laughs> Terrible thought. <clears throat> Jeff Liverman. Jeff Liverman suggested I, I say that. <laughs> teasing, teasing, teasing. It's good to see Mr. and Mrs. Schultz here this morning for the first time. Sorry that you didn't get to go to Dominican Republic, but God must have something bigger and better in mind for you guys. It's good to see you this morning. We are in our last, uh, we are at the end of chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount in the book of Matthew this morning. And Jesus, um, we are actually in our last or number six of six sayings where Jesus is getting to the bottom or the original intent meaning of the law. And so he has been saying, you have heard it said, but I say to you. And so he's bringing correction, needed correction to the word of God, because people had gotten way off base in their understanding and their application of it. He begins this sermon on the Beatitudes uh, with this idea that is completely contrary to what we would think of when we think of what would it look like for a man or a woman to truly be blessed in this world. And what our mind would be drawn to is about exactly opposite of where Jesus begins this sermon and this basis for the new kingdom life. He starts talking about being poor in spirit. That's what it means to be blessed. He pictures a, a person that's just mourning over their sin he pictures a person that is humble and meek and a person that's even willing to be persecuted for the sake of the kingdom. Whereas we know secretly in our hearts and our minds that that is about a disaster, a recipe for disaster as far as what it means to be blessed in the world. Because being blessed means stepping on all each other so we can be at the top, so we can be in the limelight, so people will see our accomplishments, so people will respect us and we have this presence in life. And so just at the very beginning, Jesus is really challenging our mindset of the value of things and even the value of our own person. He's trying to correct it and put it back in its proper biblical light. This morning's passage is no less challenging. Uh, the, the, the last several passages, particularly the last two before this, have been difficult sermons to preach because they're not feel-good sermons at all. They are just basically a, a blatant challenge to who we are and the way we think about ourselves, about others, and about God. This is difficult, difficult material to deal with. And I really struggled personally, honestly, with this passage as I wrestled with it. Because, you know, in, in your Christian life, you, you look at where you were when you got saved 
And then sometimes I look at where I am today and I thought, wow, it's, a, it's absolutely a radical difference and change and transformation by God's grace. And then I read passages like this and it just makes me feel like I'm still back here at the starting line. Like I really haven't gotten anywhere in my Christian walk. And that's the effect that these passages have had on me. Let's read chapter 5 verses 43 through 48. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Back in the 1950s, C.S. Lewis was uh, criticized in a published article for not really liking or caring for the Sermon on the Mount. And he responded to this article as to caring for the Sermon on the Mount. If caring for here means liking or enjoying, I suppose no one cares for it. Who can like being knocked flat on his face by a sledgehammer? I can hardly imagine a more deadly spiritual condition than that of a man who can read that passage with tranquil pleasure. That's what I have been experiencing as I have read these words. This teaching presupposes that a radical change has taken place. Anybody that would be crazy about these words has to have the Spirit of God in them. Anybody that would even attempt to live by these words and adopt this kingdom principle has to have the radical love, transforming grace in their hearts. Kent Hughes says, the classic preacher Alexander White almost lost his arm when he was a little boy. And he would have been taken to the hospital to have it amputated if it were not for a neighbor lady who said she would nurse him back to health. And she did. As the arm was healing, White said, through the intense pain, I'm sorry, White went through the intense pain. But the woman would say, as he was feeling that intense pain, I like the pain. I like the pain. Because that meant that he still had feeling in his arm. That it was really getting better. And as a result, when White preached, he would often say, I like the pain. I like the pain. Timothy Keller says, if there's anybody who can get away from these verses unbloodied, you're not honest. These verses are like a surgical knife and they will bloody you. The only difference is, are you going to move around on the table so the surgeon can't really go on and do his work? He might gore you if you do that, but you can come away just feeling more guilty. Just stay still and let the surgical knife 
go all the way into your heart. May God's grace give us the um, ability to like the pain as that the Spirit may bring to our hearts and minds this morning. And one, as one that believes in the sovereignty of God, the providence of God, I am curious and have to wonder, this is a season that we are going on in our personal lives. What does God have to say in this message to us? This is a season that we're going through as New Covenant Fellowship, the body of Christ. Why does God bring this passage, these words to us on this particular day at this particular season? This is the kind of fruit that can only grow as we abide in Christ. It's the fruit that Jesus would expect to see in those that he has redeemed. And... We like to be like Christ and conform to his image. And here's the image of Christ. Sometimes I'm realizing that when I say to myself or to God, I want to be like you, that I put all these qualifications on it. I want to be like you in this area. Let's not talk about this area. Who is God bringing into our lives to love Kent Hughes says this passage is the most concentrated expression of the Christian love ethic and personal relations found anywhere in the New Testament. So what part of this law is Jesus correcting at this time and this point in the sermon? Verse 43, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate Your enemy. That's a common understanding of this command on the street. Ask a Jew on the street and that's what you get. That's what was taught. It's tradition. It was the cultural norm. It was expected. That would be your mindset. This is what Jesus saw in his day. The only problem is it's not correct and it's not found in the Bible. What is found in the Bible in Leviticus 19.18 says, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. To hate your enemy was actually added. Now, why would somebody add these words to God's words? Well, because you think about other biblical scriptures and other um, commands of God and the ways of God. He had his people come into the land of the Canaanites, the promised land, and commanded them to drive them out. They are enemies. Drive them out. Every one of them. And in some case, annihilate them. And then in the Psalms, we read all about the enemies that the people of God have, and they're pursuing them, and they're persecuting them. And we have the imprecatory prayers. God, smash them like bugs. They're our enemies. And so you put all of that together and you kind of draw this conclusion. We're the chosen people. We're the redeemed. We take care of each other. And everybody else needs to get out of the way. Everybody else is an enemy that is opposing the people of God. So that was their conclusion. Love your Jewish neighbor and hate everybody else. And where they got off on this conclusion is that, yes, God did call the Jews 
to drive the people out of the land. But he was using them as instruments of his justice alone. You'll recall that God looked at the Canaanites and he said, your time for crimes unmentionable has Tom has come. You will pay the, the wrath. You will be judged for this. The instrument God used to judge them were his covenant people drive them out of the land. But it wasn't because his covenant people had attained this position of self-righteousness or righteousness in the sight of God that made them worthy of being that tool. It was simply that God sovereignly used them as that tool. Because God will take that same group of people and even prophesied before they even made it into the land, if my memory serves me correctly, that you too, chosen people, covenant people, I'm going to spit you out of the land as well because you're going to perform the exact same crimes, abominable crimes and sins that the very people that you're driving out of the land right now are committing. So it's not a personal thing of personal righteousness. It was a judicial thing, a courtroom thing. And that's kind of the context of what we've been talking about, a tool of justice, not to be applied on an individual level. And a lot of this teaching in the last several weeks has been comparing courtroom justice. But how do we relate on an individual level to one another? How do you live as a Christian in this sinful world? Old Testament says, Exodus 23, 4 and 5, If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. Ox, donkey, don't get tied up with that. Um, that was your livelihood. It was your wheels, your transportation. It was your tractor. It's the way you made a living, your computer, whatever it is. That was your sustenance for life. Very important. If you see a donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden... What shall you do? Refrain from leaving him with it. Rescue it. Deuteronomy 22, 1 through 3. You shall not see your brother's ox or sheep going astray and ignore them. You shall take them back to your brother. And if he does not live near you, because what do you do when you think, well, he doesn't live near me. I guess I'll. God says if he doesn't live near you, you don't know who he is. You shall bring it to your house. And it shall stay with you. You take care of it until your brother comes looking for it. And then you shall give it back to him and you shall do the same with his donkey or with his garment, whatever any lost thing of your brother's is. You shall find you may not ignore it. Proverbs 25, 21. If your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. If he's thirsty, give him water to drink. And then the Apostle Paul Quotes this Old Testament scripture in Romans 12, 9 through 21. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. So there's your courtroom thing as opposed to uh, vengeance, interpersonal vengeance. Then he says to the contrary. So what's the opposite? If your enemy is hungry, rather than having vengeance, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, sadly, by the time Jesus was preaching this message, um, the Jews despised and hated. Very clear in the Gospels. 
they despised and hated pretty much all non-Jews. And so it had, the mindset was that love those that are of you, hate those that are not. It is my God-given duty to behave in this way and to think this way. I am honoring God by taking care of my own and by shunning all others. So what does God mean then? What is the true understanding of this? Well, God means for us to love our enemies presently, even if they are doing us harm, regardless of what they say, regardless of what they do, regardless of how bad it hurts or how bad it looks. This is a love without boundaries. You know how we, in our own hearts and in our own way, put boundaries around the extent of who we're going to love and how much we're going to love them, even people in our own home, people in our own church. We have boundaries. And it's based on our own little justice system of who deserves what, what we hold back or what we give. And Jesus is teaching this concept, this kingdom principle of a love. It's not based on that. It doesn't have those kind of limits. As a matter of fact, it's a love that transcends our natural thinking and our natural impulses because it's a supernatural love. You can't. You can't have this without first experiencing the love of God. There's no reason to act this way, to think this way in the world that we live in. And it's principles other than this is what how God loves us. And this is how God asks us to love others. Our text gives us two reasons why that we should do this. And first, it says because It makes you like God in verse 45, so that you may be sons of your father who's in heaven. Well, what does your father who's in heaven do? He makes the he sends the rain on the righteous and the unrighteous and the sun on the just and the unjust. The God shows loving kindness. He takes care of, provides for the righteous and the unrighteous. So that's why. When you made your way to church this morning, you didn't just pass field after field, home after home, that was just dark and burned up and and dry. It was all green. And then you come to church and it's green, too, because field A and field B look the same, no matter what church that is or no matter who lives in that house. Why does it look the same? Why doesn't God just nourish or flourish those who profess him as Christ. Wouldn't it just be simpler if we could pass homes on the way to church? There's an unbeliever. There's an unbeliever. Look, their house is falling apart. But look at ours. Why? Because God is good. He's just good. And he just is loving. It's his nature. It's who he is. He's impartial. So, yeah, he, 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 he loves the backsliders. He loves the Muslims. He loves the Buddhists. They are being taken care of. The atheists. They are being taken care of by God because that's who God is and what God does. It's his character. It's his essence. Another reason 
It's because it's this kind of love that sets us apart. In verse 46, Jesus asks a question. If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If I mention the word, I just to mention the word IRS makes me reach for my wallet. Is it still there? It's still there. It's just the effect the taxes have on people that work. Because you get your paycheck and then it's not what you thought it was going to be. In that day, you had tax collectors. They were despised even by their own people. They're about the only group of people that were still ethnic Jews that were hated by ethnic Jews. They were lowlifes. They were crooks. They were cutthroats because they were they, they would get this job from the Romans and they wanted it because they were greedy. They realized they would take the taxes, not just what was owed, but anything extra they could get. They would cheat people and give this money to their enemies, the Romans. And Jesus is saying, even the double-crossing, low-life tax collectors have friends. They crank up the grill. They invite their buddies over for barley burgers and mutton dogs. They share drinks together. They exert a certain kindness to their own kind. They take care of each other. I mean, even the people that you despise the most on the face of the earth that you think there is no good thing, they even do this. It's not good enough. That's just doing what everybody else does. They love their own kind. It's too common. There's no no difference in that. So what does he want? Verse 47. If you greet only your brothers, what more... Are you doing than others? In this question is this command, this expectation, do more. Yes, this is common. This happens in the world. It's a cultural norm. You do more. That the transforming grace in our hearts is to yield more fruit, a better fruit, a deeper fruit, a richer fruit of love. Than what we see in the world. Everything has to be more. So don't go one mile like the world does go to. Don't just give your tunic or what's expected like the world does. Give them your cloak also. Don't just give your money to people who've worked hard for it. Give the beggars also. It's got to be more. Don't do the predictable thing. Do the unique thing, the impressive thing. That's what makes Christianity distinct. Martin Lloyd-Jones says the Christian is a man who's above and goes beyond the natural man at his very best and highest. Before I continue the quote. Our flesh will run out of goodness very quickly. You cannot live for God in the flesh. 
And that applies to every relationship, not just your enemies, your marriages, your sibling relationships, everything. The flesh runs out of steam and goodness. It is only by the power of God that you get more. He says there are many people in the world who are not Christian, but who are very moral, highly ethical men whose word is their bond and who are scrupulous and honest, just upright You never find them doing a shady thing to anybody, but they are not Christian. They'll say so. They may have rejected the whole of the New Testament with scorn. But they're absolutely honest, straightforward, true. Now, the Christian, by definition here, is a man who is capable of doing something that the best natural man cannot do. He goes beyond and does more than that. He exceeds. He's separate from all others. And not only from the worst among others, but from the very best and highest among them. So, question. As we sit, is there anything about us, something about us that is unique in the way we love? Or is it just ordinary, run-of-the-mill World life. Is there something about my love that cannot be explained on natural terms? Because it's so different and unique. And when people come and visit our church... Will, will they leave? Is it, is it like just going to the company Christmas party? Or you have your chat and your greetings and your smiles and your laughs? Or will they leave thinking to themselves, I've been to a lot of churches. But there was something about that group of people that was different in a good way. I, I, I leave feeling safe cared for and love and they didn't even know me it's got to be noticeable with God as the example has to be more Jesus said that's a mark of being a son of God it's a mark you will know they are Christians by their love And I, and we sing that hymn, and we think, yeah, we got to huddle. That's huddle, group hug, love each other. And that love never makes it out of the group hug to our enemies. And the mark is when you're loving not just your family and your friends, but you're loving your enemies. That's a mark that stands out. You can't earn this kind of this life. This has to be given to you. You have to be born into it, saved. You have to be adopted into it and being get, get, receive the spirit as a gift. It's nothing that we can attain to ourselves. It's a work of God. And if we have that work of God, the spirit is very aggressive in making us like God. And so... We should expect to see this attitude in our lives. 
expect to see ourselves doing what God would do. And what does God do? Love his enemies. Who are our enemies? Doesn't take a rocket science to um, explain that. I'm sure when I use the word enemies, if I say, who is your enemy? You have somebody in mind, probably, more than likely. In our text, to get some a few examples. One is those who persecute you, the most obvious ones, verse 44. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. So these are people who intend to do you harm. They want to do you harm for who you are. There's hostility. There's no nothing hidden about it or secret about it. They are after you. And Christians are persecuted all over the world. Other people are persecuted all over the world for a variety of reasons. Not just Christians. But Christians are persecuted. Some of them lose their homes. Some of them lose their lives. Some are sold into slavery. Some are tortured. They mean you harm. Jesus says, love them. Can you imagine? As they carry your mother and father away, love them. As you carry... As they carry your sons and daughters away, love them. As they destroy your homes and exile you, love them. Be the kind of person that's so transformed and smitten by the gospel that you break the natural barriers and you do not respond according to the flesh. But you love them as your heavenly father loves them. Another group could just be um, a little more general, less specific, the unrighteous, because says the text says God reigns on the unrighteous. So there are there are the group of people out there. They're not believers. They might let you know that. And just by virtue of the fact they're not for you, then they're against you. It might not be so personal, but they don't like Christian beliefs or Christianity to begin with. They don't like anything that you stand for. And so you're going to get robbed in different ways. Because they don't know God in that way. Uh, They might publicly protest your beliefs. It might be um, somebody that is close to you and they're just not a believer so they don't get it and they they give you slack for it. Could be somebody in your own home. It could be a rebellious child that has not adopted the faith and they're just living their own kind of lives and they're and they're bucking you for the stance that you're taking. It could be a, a unloving spouse. It's an unbelieving spouse. It's just angry or uncaring or unkind or unforgiving and not cooperative at all at the choices that you want to make to grow in Christ. And there's tension and there's conflict. Jesus says, love them. Or it could just be anybody for any reason. The word enemy comes from the word enmity, which, you know, something gets in between you and there's strife, there's there's conflict, there's friction. So anybody at any moment in your life could serve as your enemy, even those that you love, even other believers. Sometimes we're, you know, we're not perfect. And yeah, we do things that are hurtful to each other and harmful and it's evil and it's wrong. And so rather than helping each other grow and nourishing each other, we're pushing each other down and stifling each other in in our darkness. I'm reminded of the time when uh, Jesus turned to Peter, his disciple, his one of the, the inner circle. How much did Jesus love Peter? And he says, get behind me, Satan. 
Because at that moment, you're my enemy. At that moment, you are opposing this plan of God of redemption. There's, there was enmity. Talk about awkwardness. Don't stop loving because of the person offended you. Or because they hurt your feelings. Or because they stepped on your, your pride or your dignity. Or because they disappointed you or frustrated you or threatened you or threatened to kill you. This kind of love doesn't stop. You don't, you don't put that barrier up, that boundary. That natural human boundary doesn't stop there at the offense. This goes right through it. Brother or not, neighbor or not. Piper says, this isn't two commands. I want you to love your, your neighbors and then I want you to love your enemies. He says, it's one command. Love your neighbors, even if they are your enemies. So how do I do it? Well, three practical ways that it's shown in this text. Uh, you can do it by just greeting them. You can do it by meeting their needs. And you can do it by praying for them. In verse 47, you know, Jesus says, you don't just greet your brothers. What reward do you have in that? So it is a simple way would be just to greet everyone, even those that we know are against us with a warm smile. Don't just open the door for your friends or hold the door for your friends. You also do that for your enemies. So a cultural way of showing warmth, showing respect and gratitude and thoughtfulness and greeting. Another way is by meeting the needs. The text says that God meets the needs of the unrighteous. They need to eat. They need to stay warm. And God meets that. And so we are to look out for the needs also of our enemies like the Apostle Paul said, if they're thirsty, rather than doing what the world does and say, ah, you're thirsty, good. Oh, you're starving to death? Hmm. Great. One less enemy to worry about. He says, feed them. And then verse 44, pray for them. And I don't think Jesus in this context is saying, pray imprecatory prayers. Oh, God, that they would just break out with a bad case of hemorrhoids, the whole lot of them. It is prayer for their well-being. You are with, you are asking God. You're merciful, God, you're saying, good God, would you bring goodness into the home of these people if they need salvation? God. Would you save them and bring truth to their doorstep? If they need healing, God, would you heal them? If they need provisions. It's, it's wanting goodness in the lives of your enemies. Is this impractical? Is this absolutely ridiculous? I mean... <laughs> Is the Bible asking me to be that guy, that one in the home or, you know, at the office or in the community or at the ball field or on the highway? That one who's just loving and forgiving and isn't vengeful. 
Is it practical for me to open myself up? Isn't that the guy that just keeps getting taken advantage of time after time? Because he just keeps coming back with love? How, how practical is that? It's absolutely ridiculous on worldly terms. It absolutely does not fit into the way the world operates. It does not fit into our own fleshly way of thinking and dealing out justice and friendships and joy. In that sense, it is absolutely impractical and ridiculous, and it does not fit into this world. What's Jesus going to say in chapter 6? He's going to teach us how to pray, and what's he going to say? What should we pray as much as possible? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. How much do we want heaven on earth? How much do we want God's principles and God's laws to be worked out in this world? How much do we want change? How sick are we of the evil? Do we want a community? Do we want a world? What do we want to read in the headlines today? Nuclear threats? Immigration? I mean, what, what do we really want? Is it practical to just let the world keep going the way it is? Is that practical or is that ridiculous? What's more ridiculous? Is it more ridiculous for me to not change, for me to not love God, and to just wait for another headline of some victim in the paper and more child abuse, more murder? Is it impractical for me to just wait to read about another headline about a, bomb, a bombing or some kind of torture that's taking place? I mean, what kind of world do we want? What is more impractical, to just let things go on as they are and to believe the lie of the enemy? Which, by the way, infiltrates the church in which Jesus says the, hates, the gates of hell will not prevail. And the enemy infiltrates our mind with all this bad news and says we're doomed. Our culture's going downhill. People are more and more immoral. That's part of the story. The rest of the story is but God. The power of God in believers that brings forth this kind of change. What's more impractical? For me to just let the evil and the darkness and the pain and the suffering keep going. Or for me to, by the power of God, do what I can do in changing it by not being vengeful. By not retaliating like everybody else does and hating my enemies. What's more practical? And what hope does this world really have? How are you going to bring forth the change? If we're really sick and tired of it. The immorality. How are we going to bring forth the change? That's right here. It's right here. It's the gospel. It's obedience. It's submission. It's really meaning thy kingdom come, thy will be done. I don't want to live according to the principles of the world anymore. I want you, God. We sang that song. We sang that song, I want to be where you are. You answered, 
I mean, you called, I answered, I want to be where you are. And I thought, man, this is where God goes with his, he goes to his enemies. Do I want to be there or do I want to be back here with myself, by myself? Reminds me of the Apostle Paul that said, man, I just want to be in the fellowship with the sufferings. You know what he's saying? I love God so much. And the presence of God transcends even the pain of this world to the point where I'd rather be with God in battle and bloody than to be left behind. I want to be where you are. And this is where God takes us. Our ability to love goes up, not down when we see ourselves poor in spirit. Our, our ability to love goes up, not down when we mourn over our sin. Our ability to love goes up, not down when we become vulnerable to persecution for loving God. Our ability to love goes up, not down when we see Jesus on the cross. Who took our punishment that we earned, that we rightly deserve, bore it on himself and gives us in exchange eternal fellowship and goodness with the Father. Our ability to love goes up in our obedience and submission to the gospel, the ways of the kingdom of God, not down. This is the way up. It's unnatural. It's impractical. It's ridiculous. It doesn't fit into this world because it's not of this world. So how do we love our enemies? It's an act of the will. It's choosing to count someone as more important than ourselves. Totally unnatural. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but consider others as more important as yourselves. Did God just say that? When we're raised in the cultural norm is, oh, no, you're not going to one up me. I one up you. That's what life is all about. It is an act of the will to see ourselves as God sees us, to see others as God sees others, and to see God as he sees himself. It's totally unreasonable, and it's totally God. Kent Hughes says, when we think about loving our enemies, Jesus is not asking us to have a romantic love, or a buddy love, or a family love, or an emotional love for our enemies. Jesus doesn't ask that here or anywhere else to love our enemies in the same way that we love our nearest and our dearest. There are people for whom we have spontaneous, natural, instinctive love, and we don't have to make any effort to love them. We just do. What he commands is an agape love. It's a deliberate, intelligent, willful, goodwill towards others. 
C.S. Lewis says in Mere Christianity, the rule for all of us is perfectly simple. Don't waste your time bothering whether you love your neighbor. Act as if you do. As soon as we do this, we find one of the great secrets when you are behaving as if you love someone, you will presently come to love them. When you're wanting to, when you're choosing to. So I'll close with this illustration. That Kent Hughes shares about a personal friend. He says in this passage, the best illustration I know of to explain what Jesus is talking about comes from the life of one of my wife's dearest friends. She and her family had just returned from the mission field and had rented a rather nice townhouse, at least nice in terms of where they were living out on the mission field. And she is a very creative person, did a wonderful job of decorating the place. They settled in and only one thing was wrong. The family who moved next door. They turned their front yard into a desert, broke the windows out of their house, were always using foul language, urinating in their own front yard, generally caused havoc in the entire neighborhood. The final straw was when one of the boys climbed into our friend's yard and threw a whole can of orange paint over the patio walls. And my wife's friend was angry. She did not like her neighbors. She was not happy with God for putting her where he had put her. Now, realizing that her heart was not right, she got down on her knees and she said, Lord, you know that I do not like these people at all. God, help me to love them. She did not feel any different, but she resolved to exercise love. She baked her neighbors a pie and took it to them, thus beginning a caring relationship. The neighbors did not change, but she did. She had begun to love them. And when those neighbors moved out, she actually wept. She wept. What an example of intelligent, volitional love that says, I will love by the grace of Christ within me. So, yeah, it's about winning souls. But it's also about Christ continually winning our soul. It's about doing, but it's about being. Whether people change or not, who are we in the sight of God? How far are we willing to go? I want to be where you are. Let us not get stuck on mile marker one when Jesus is at mile marker two. I can only assume that's what God is calling us to with this text. God, I want to be where you are. May God bless the preaching of his word.